Hello there, and welcome to the Thinking Fellows podcast. My name is Ke- uh, Caleb, not Kelsey, Caleb. But I'm looking at Kelsey because today I have uh, two guests on the show. We have John Hoyam and Kelsey Clembera. And we're doing a little bit of a, a pilot or an experiment this week. Um, I've been kicking around the idea of a new video series for 1517 called the Junior Fellows that would get members of 1517's Junior Fellowship on to talk about theological topics in general, but also maybe research, interests, uh, reading, current uh, journal articles, maybe both published and read, and those kinds of things. Um, spin off the Thinking Fellows a little bit, but also give the younger members of our fellowship, people who are building up their careers, an opportunity to um, talk and talk together and and take a shot at it. So what we're doing to start this off is we're going to do a couple of Thinking Fellows episodes as the junior fellows here. And uh, if people want to see what 1517's fellowship is made up of more, you can go to the contributors section on our website at 1517.org. There we have a list of who are the senior fellows, regular fellows, and junior fellows. Um, the idea is to establish 1517's nature as a think tank more publicly and openly and also allow um, the fellows in there some opportunities to share what they're working on. Uh, so we do some meetups between the fellows here in Southern California every once in a while. Um, not as of late, but we used to do them pretty regularly, about once every other month. Um, and we also have a lot of the fellows writing articles regularly for us as well and speaking at conferences. And so uh, the more ways that we can make that sort of apparent and how that dynamic works, uh, the better in my mind. So I'm just going to try to do that here. Today's topic is about mortal and venial sins. We got a request from a listener actually about this. Uh, It was a very simple email. It just said, has the Thinking Fellows ever done an episode directly on this topic? If not, uh, would you guys consider doing one? I thought it'd be a great topic for us to do, because mostly when I brought it up to my dad, he said, nah, I'm, I don't want to. And I was like, well, I think we should. So let's let's just go for it. Um, conveniently enough, uh, you know, Kelsey and I worked on this translation and this edited volume of chapters for a book called The Theology of the Cross. You can get it on the 1517 shop or on Amazon. And in there, Martin Luther deals with the category of, uh, you know, uh, mortal and venial sins in many of the theses, and there's even a couple of theses which directly engage a category. So we'll be able to talk about that, and maybe we'll dive into uh, the use of mortal sins in uh, the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, and uh, also just a brief overview of the doctrine of sin in, in general, and maybe why we don't hear this these categories come up that often in uh, Lutheran churches and, or in Lutheran theology. So guys, uh, to start with the topic... Um, uh, either John or Kelsey, you know, what, what's a working definition of mortal and venial that we want to go with here? I translated mortal as deadly in the uh, Heidelberg disputation. I left venial the same because some of the other options were like lesser sins or little sins, but I added a footnote that clarified the difference because I didn't want to go around saying sin wasn't substantial, even when it's venial, quote unquote. Yeah, I mean, I think the right definition is a difference between sins that lead to death and sins that do not lead to death. And death, they're standing in for eternal damnation. Uh, So a sin that leads to death uh, is one in which the state of grace has been withdrawn and uh, eternal hell is one's uh, fate thereafter. So that's 
probably the most typical explanation of mortal sin as it's conceived across the tr Christian traditions. Yeah, and I guess in pop culture, we'd be familiar with this just because of movies like The Seven Deadly Sins, or you know, a lot of people are familiar with the concept of the seven big sins, right? Um, yeah. From what I understand, too, um, mortal sins are done either willingly or knowingly, um, whereas a venial sin is something that you might do, um, but not be, not not do with a full intent to sin. Um, so something like gossip or um, like even a little white white lie would be if you're just looking for a practical way to kind of make the distinction between them. And then I think it's also this is maybe um, I don't know clear to everybody, but just to kind of reiterate that this these definitions come from specifically from the um, Catholic tradition. Um, so even when Luther's talking about them, he's using the definitions that he has been given as a friar um, and kind of trying to flip them on their heads, um, make people think about them a little bit more. Yeah, I've had some interactions with some Roman Catholics on Twitter um, about this. And one of the ones that you know, like really got somebody fired up was just quoting Luther that uh, good works done apart from faith in Christ are deadly sins. They're mortal sins. They uh, damn you. And that, that idea really strikes heavily against people who hold this distinction real firmly because a good work is literally the opposite of a deadly sin. A person uh, couldn't do a, a good work that damned them. Um, so John, we, we were talking a little bit before the episode. I think you had a good distinction here about the order in which the sin and the, in the losing of faith happens. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So one of the things that Melanchthon in the apology of the Augsburg confession is doing is arguing against the Roman Catholic theologians, uh, concerning the issue of faith and mortal sin. And one of the one of the things that the, the Roman Catholic theologians in dispute with the reformers were asserting was that uh, faith and mortal sin could uh, coexist. But the uh, evangelicals, uh, that is the, the Lutherans, Melanchthon's party, uh, rejected the idea that faith and mortal sin can coexist. So uh, it seems that the, the position that Melanchthon at least implies in the apology is that uh, one doesn't commit a mortal sin and then lose faith. Rather, uh, the presence of mortal sin indicates the uh, lack of faith. So I think that's an important uh, distinction when considering this evangelically uh, and from our confessional perspective. Right, so it, it essentially becomes that you, the sins you commit can no longer be mortal when faith is present uh, versus sort of the the idea that the work indicates what kind of faith is actually there. Right. And it gets tricky in this case because uh, the issue of uh, what kinds of works are performed, it's, it's often hard to tell the difference. Uh, is it a good work good because it's externally good or is it good because of the type of person who does it? Uh, and those are, those are kind of tricky questions when it comes to looking at somebody and then testing uh, what sort of state they're in 
on that basis? Are you in a state of grace or are you not in a state of grace? You have kind of a letter and the spirit of the law issue going on too, right? So you, you can have the question, can somebody, um, you know, in their heart be committing deadly sins while externally doing, you know, apparent righteous things? Um, or even to the degree that uh, Jesus speaks on the Sermon on the Mount that, you know, that a man who looks at a woman with lust is guilty of uh, breaking the sixth commandment of adultery. He, it's not just the person who was the adulterer. So um, do you start counting those different, right? So if you if you will it in your heart to do adultery and you don't do it, are you actually any better off than if you did it in this uh, this distinction between, you know, less significant sins and the sins that are going to be indicative of your damnation? So I, I just thought maybe let's read a Thesis 8 and 9 of the Heidelberg Disputation because I think it gets to why Lutherans, you know, like I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say it replaces mortal and venial, but one of the distinctions between sins that I think we use more often is the difference between original sin and actual sins. Um, and uh, again, not that that's our version of mortal and venial, but if if you hear Lutherans start dividing up sin into different categories, that's that's the one we engage with more. And I think uh, Thesis 8 and 9 get to the heart of this. So Thesis 8 reads, The works of man are all the more deadly when they are done without fear and are aligned with unrestrained evil and self-security. And the word deadly there is, is mortal. And then... Uh, Number nine, saying that works apart from Christ are dead, but not deadly, again, mortal, uh, looks like a dangerous turn from the fear of God. So uh, what, do we, what do we do with Luther here? I mean, it looks like he's saying that every, every sin is a mortal sin. Good works can be mortal sins. And um, saying that a Christian can have dead works, but still have faith is, uh, is not taking God's words seriously. I think it gets to what John was talking about with Melanchthon and um, the Augsburg, the apology of the Augsburg Confession in the sense that what Luther's saying is if you think that you're doing good, but you don't have faith and you're not trusting um, that, that your righteousness is coming from Christ, then you're even in more danger than um, you, you might even be in more danger than someone who's, clearly aware of their sin because you have no idea of what's separating you from God. Um, and you think that these little things that don't seem like a big deal, um, aren't, aren't, aren't big enough sins that you have to repent, um, of them or you have to be aware of them. I kind of like, I like that a lot. The, the awareness aspect gets to what Luther does in the early portion of this with the law, which is identifies, the, the law's goodness as being an opening of the eyes to to sin. And then progressively from there, he builds what kind of sin the eyes are open up to. And, it, and it's from everything like sins that you commit, mortal sins that you would commit to, to simply your will just not being aligned with God is that knowledge is brought in. So the, so the knowledge of the law ends up being the important, the important piece here, the distinction. 
which then brings us to a new distinction between the difference of the the Augustinians that Luther is addressing here and where what will eventually be the distinction between law and gospel. Yeah, and I think it's I, I again this might be saying the same thing over again, but <clears throat> just the idea that we we because we're sinful and because um, we don't know the things of God on our own accord, we're always going to um, assume that we can figure out what sin is and we're going to try to rank it between, you know, something that's the very worst and maybe just a little bit um, not as bad. And so I think Luther is kind of demolishing those rankings and even those categories to, to really say um, and kind of reiterate what Christ is saying in the Sermon on the Mount, that all sin is, is separating you from God. Um, yeah, can the, the distinction can give us the impression that we're better off than we are, right? If we can, uh, yeah. if we can count up all the sin that we do on a daily basis as venial, as less significant, as not endangering the faith, we can uh, happily live with those right? It's actually sort of like the opposite of like an antinomian problem that, uh, or it is like a true antinomian problem that Luther is addressing yeah. here, right? Is that if, if uh, a certain set of sins are of not enough significance to cause you to fear God, um, you just, you're going to be happy to live with them. What do you think, John? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I th think I think also in play here is the issue of sin um, in terms of our relationship to God and then sin in terms of our relationship to other people. So all sin is equally serious with regards to the broken relationship with God that sin just is. Uh, but not all sins are equal in the way that they harm our neighbors. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, like, for example, in the church, we take we take certain certain sins more seriously than others. I mean, that might not be the right way to put it, but we take certain like gross public sins, especially seriously because of how they harm our relationships with our neighbors. Right. So I'm thinking especially here of like the letter of the law with adultery. Um, like the church simply does not or should not tolerate uh, adultery amongst uh, professing, confessing, communing Christians. Uh, and so uh someone who is openly brazenly and, and, you know, gladly committing adultery is someone that is going to come under church discipline by necessity because marriage mm -hmm. uh, is so important. There's all these creaturely and vocational dimensions that are uh, connected with uh, sins of a sexual nature, especially. So I think that is an important thing to keep in mind as well. Uh, and might, it might help us to keep the vocation and creation dimension in mind also because uh, again, we, we don't want this distinction to become about ranking people into more and less holy, right. uh, because then it becomes about me instead of about how good works uh, are actually for my neighbor. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I'm yeah, reminded I of the, uh, the episode that we just released on YouTube on the Decalogue. Um, they, did the, they did the entirety of the Decalogue. It was uh, Chad Bird, Dan Price, and my dad. And on the sixth commandment, my dad told us, told a story about when his uh, aunt went through a divorce and how that affected basically the whole family. They had a really close knit family. Um, his uncle at the time 
was the closest thing to like in age proximity and even proximity of doing things, a father figure he knew as far as even that man was the one who would come in the morning and pick him up and take him to church on Sunday. Right. So in that instance of, of divorce there, it drastically harmed, uh, not just the people involved in that, the two people involved in that divorce, but a group of people down to, um, you know, changing who the person who takes you to church every Sunday is. Right. Um, and so when we, when we talk about, I think the neighbor distinctions much um, more important, right? Because you're talking about possibly jeopardizing the faith of others is actually, um, it's a, it's a little more serious. It's a lot more serious than sort of the harm it would personally do to you. Yeah. So maybe is it safe to say the distinctions are the distinctions between sin um, and the consequences of certain sins are helpful when we're thinking of our neighbor, um, whereas they're not as helpful when we're thinking of um, our standing before God or our status before God, because we know that all sin separates us from God. Is that just a, maybe like an easy way to kind of consider it? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it it could perhaps maintain the weight of certain things um, without instigating a certain type of bean counting, right? Which I, you know, John said, am I doing better than the person on my right or left? Where the not sinning becomes sort of a competition more broadly. And we see this even just interdenominationally, right? Where the behavior of other groups of Christians are compared against our particular group, right? There's a, there's a, a more morality to our group than there is to the next group. And uh, I think that, I mean, I think that happens a lot um, where you can sort of say, well, look at those Christians drink and these Christians don't drink. So these ones must be much more disciplined when it comes to the way they, they act. Um, I guess, so the other big thing here to not skip over is assurance and the way that the ranking of sins affects assurance. Because I think this goes both ways, right? If you have categories which can tell you your standing of faith, not even your standing before God, I guess in a sense you're standing before God, but even just the status of your own faith. Is your faith on life support? Is it gone entirely or is it doing pretty okay? It's like a fuel meter is what happens with this. The flip side of that is there's also then got to be some sort of works meter, right? Am I doing enough good works? Have I done some substantial good works? Is the weight of the good and the bad uh, in the positive or is it in the negative? Do I have work to do in regards of how my faith is going to survive? Yeah, you've got your your balance scale set up where you know you have your good works on one side and your your sins on the other side, and then you know like hopefully your your good works side outweighs your sin side. And you know usually how it goes is like as you go through your life, you want your balance scale to be weighted even more and more and more towards the good work side. So that when you get close to being dead, you, <laughs> you really don't have that many sins to worry about. Uh, right. This is usually how it gets set up. There's some hyperbolic stories, right. Of, um, of like people waiting to get baptized. I don't know I'm sure how many of these are real, right. But people waiting to get baptized till they're close to death because at baptism, all those sins would be, you mm-hmm. know, taken care of so you could sort of 
you could you could live a sinful and fun quote unquote life and then have it all sort of nuked towards the end. Yeah, and that makes sense. In yeah, I mean, in the early you... church. Go ahead, Kelsey. Go ahead. I was going to say it makes sense when you think of um, the Catholic system and the, their understanding of grace, because um, they they would need to separate something that was of a greater sin or greater consequence, or separated you a little bit more from God, because you you need to work a little bit harder to get back to Him. Whereas um, the Nielsen's, you, you're not completely separated. You still, um, you're still kind of like on, you might be on the outs with him, but you don't need to work as hard to get back in. So yeah, it's that same kind of uh, scale system. And even the, the, the penance, right? Um, yeah. In a system of confession and then receiving a, an assignment for penance would be weighted towards the, the weight of that sin against your faith, right? This is, these are the... And you're essentially given then faith acts to complete that will then yeah. help restore that faith. That's, you know, a lot of it is sim- is simply prayers. I mean, when it, you know, it's a it's simply pray this many times. Over, it's it's a faith act. It's a religious act that can help then uh, restore that. John, you were going to say something about the early church with the baptisms, or yeah, I was just going to note that in in the early church, I mean. Many of the early Christians uh, read the New Testament and came away with a very high view of baptism. You know, baptism forgives sins. Uh, baptism delivers you, you know, from death to life, and and all those stuff. So they they thought very highly of baptism. But this is why some of them delayed baptism until right before they died because they hadn't figured out yet what exactly to do with sins after baptism. So they would set it up so that you get baptized and then commit any sins prior to dying. Uh, and then, of course, this is how the sort of medieval penitential system uh, or the, the system of doing penance uh, gets set up. So St. Jerome uh, calls penance the uh, second plank of baptism. So that if you, if you shipwreck your baptism with serious <laughs> sin in your life, at least you can go to penance and you'll have a plank to uh, hang on to. Of course, in Luther's theology, Luther kind of blows this all up uh, when he realizes that uh, not only is penance something uh, that God does for us, but it also is the thing that returns us to baptism. So you never progress beyond uh, simply, I am baptized. You, like your life, according to Luther's view of, of Christian life and sanctification, is always this return to what God has already done for you in baptism. And so when you go to confession and you hear the words of absolution, uh, you're, not, you're not progressing beyond baptism, but you are returning to it, going back to it. And so the original gift, which was already abundant, forgiveness of sins, uh, given with the water and the word, you know that abundant gift is applied over and over again throughout one's life. Yeah, so you get, um, I mean, this kind of like incessant waiting then would tend to also wait, you know, sacraments, means of grace, right? So baptism in that instance has more power to erase sins than the Lord's Supper does, um, than a confession does, than all sorts of things. And um, the, the way that we speak of the means of grace is that these all share the same power, actually. They all share the word of God joined to a 
means, which then applies the forgiveness of Christ uh, onto you and, uh, and, and forgives you of those sins over and over and over again. But really, it's reapplying the faith that is already yours. You never, you never lost it. You don't lose your faith one week, and that's why you need to go to the Lord's Supper, is to get the faith back. It's to be assured that, it never le- that the promise never left you. You need somebody telling you the promise is still good. You didn't, you didn't work your way out of God's promises. Yeah. And you don't return for a little bit more grace. Um, you right. return knowing that, that yeah, God's, God's whole demeanor and disposition has completely changed. And um, he looks on you in favor and with love. Yeah, and that gets to that section of the apology again, which is in a section where Melanchthon talks very thoroughly about the that the outside of faith is nothing but the wrath of God. Right? This is like this is all you you know from from nature and um, even from from the Word of God is wrath. You actually have to have the faith delivered to you before any of that can be considered good. Um. And I think that echoes too in in Heidelberg. Like, you know, the reason you can call the law good is because you have faith. If you don't have faith, that the dis- it's just destruction. That's where it ends. That's where it stops. Its purpose is to break you. Um, even in its making you more moral, it's breaking you. It's not actually getting you anywhere. Um, but when you're when you have faith, that purpose is actually now made. Um, available to you, and it's that it's the cross of Christ. Um, mm-hmm. It is to make you dependent on on Christ, and that's that's actually the the reason for the proclaiming of and the teaching of the doctrine of sin is to increase your dependence on Christ, so that you understand just how lowly you are. That's you know that's uh, doing my best to channel Lutheran small called there is that the chief office of the law is to reveal just how far the creature has fallen. Yeah, I think there's there's a there's a kind of twofold freedom here. I mean, like St. Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Uh, and so in this way, we we don't need to be afraid about condemning sin, either in general or specifically from the pulpit uh, in our preaching and teaching, uh, etc. But then we we also don't need to be quite so afraid about whether the gospel and the Holy Spirit will affect good works in us because uh, the law works when it's preached and the gospel works when it's preached. And our job is to do both, not to maintain or manicure or curate what they're doing in us. Does that make sense? Yeah. We're not in charge of how they're uh, applying or being used to change people. We're just in charge of speaking them. Yeah. What I think, is sort of amazing about when I go back and read sections of the formula of Concord, specifically like on the will on article two and on the law and article six, what you walk away with is that good works are actually a promise. Um, And that's, I I think that's just such a big change than the climate that we are in, especially in American Christianity where sanctification is, you know, so much of your assurance it's like it has replaced the doctrine of assurance in many cases um and so where you actually see that the sanctifying work of the holy spirit and the fruits of faith 
good works, are part of the promise. They're promised to you. They're delivered to you. They're done with you. Um, but it is not something that uh, that is dependent on your will alone to make sure that the faith is going to last until the day you die. Yeah. Yeah. Not even your will cooperating with, uh, with the Holy spirit in the correct way. Right. Yeah. I mean, that section is amazing because it's sort of a, there's a, there's a great, that clause is a massive dependence on how, how is such cooperation possible? And that cooperation is made possible by, the preaching of the gospel and the administration of sacraments isn't that um, interesting? That's the that's the attribution to being able to finally have the Spirit work in you and with your will is that uh, the promise is applied to you. Kelsey, you were going to yeah, say something. I, well, I was just going to say I think what's interesting is when um, when sanctification does become our means of assurance we're obviously missing that um good works are a promise but then we're also missing the very fact that justification is has been promised to us and given to us so we're like completely obliterating the whole the whole way that um god has chosen to save us because we're just again turned back to ourselves and turned back to 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 working and working and working um so we miss kind of both of his gifts in justification and sanctification. It's kind of amazing how self-centered we are when we start really diving into this kind of thing, is that like, um, even when it comes to both sin and good works in these particular types of ways, it's all about us. It's all about mm-hmm. um, what we're doing, what other people aren't doing, how we're better or worse, and we're constantly looking inward to determine... Um, what's going on. And I think the, one of the big problems with this is then your feelings about a particular situation or even your measurement of how bad a, or good a thing was actually starts to determine what the word of God says about you. So you're, you're starting to actually be the, the prime interpreter um, of that rather than those things being applied over you and telling you who you are, right? The law and the gospel tell you who you are. Um, they condemn you and, and then bring you alive. Um, they, they tell you that you're a miserable sinner, that that's by nature, you're sinful and unclean. And then it tells you that you're totally redeemed. You have, um, a complete change of, of the person there applied externally. And, uh, you, you begin to change what that word actually says about you when you become the measure of whether that's true or not. So I think it's important to make a distinction between evidence and assurance. These aren't necessarily the best words, uh, but you know there are there are passages of scripture and passages in our confessions that teach that uh, good works are evidence of faith. Uh, so of course we we do believe that uh, from faith good works flow mm-hmm. uh, and. So we might refer to them as evidence, but this is not the same thing as assurance for the Christian who is struggling with sin uh, or curious about how God actually is disposed towards them. 
So I think another piece of this is that often good works are least obvious to the people who are doing them. Mm-hmm. They're obvious. They are most obvious to those who are the beneficiaries of them. Uh, so I think you might see this in uh, especially close familial relationships, like talk to any, you know, I'm in that phase of life where, where everybody's having kids, starting to have kids. Everybody complains about being, uh, being bad at the, the task of parenting. Uh, but oftentimes to others, uh, it's, it's obvious that, um, that in fact they've been endowed with this gift for, uh, precisely doing what they must for their children. So I don't know. I think that's an important distinction to make between evidence and assurance. And then also like the fact that this evidence is often not evidence for you. If you're the ones, the one doing the good works. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's interesting, right? That the, I mean, um, you hear, uh, the, you know, the common, they will know we are Christians by our love. Right. And that is actually not about you knowing you're a Christian by your great works of love. It's about the, yeah. the person around you. And um, this gets to that, you know, that circle of vocation that we often talk about at 1517. We've done this in a lot of talks, Thinking Fellows, blog articles, right? There is a group of people who are most close to you who you're going to be in contact with all the time. Um, your family is going to be the most impacted by by your works, right? It's like... Um, that's who the day-to-day is mostly going to impact. And then maybe coworkers and people outside of that and, and people at your church. And, and it goes on and on, right? But that I think that's Im- important to know. And that gets even back to that mortal, how the vocation distinction actually is more helpful than mortal and venial because, um, like you said, your works can, can affect how your children think about uh, Christ and the faith and they negatively or positively and they can also affect how they what they think about you um negatively or positively when you do apologetics you know the most common questions we get are stem from familial problems often right so somebody uh, in close family often um suffered right um and died or also the the one you'll get is that there are associations with bad behaviors cruel behaviors that are then attributed to parents. I see this one a lot amongst people our age where like if they have a disassociation with the faith that they were raised in, it's often often because the things they determined were bad about the way they were raised can come back to also their parents' relationship with the faith, right? So mm-hmm. if there was a particular type of punitive structure in the house for uh, types of behavior that that, that will also that will stem from how the church is supposed to punish behaviors. And that that person has determined that that was overly cruel to do to a child and that that was given to their parents by the church. And so that they want nothing to do with this thing that was cruel to children. Yeah. yeah. Um, we're real close to time. Is there anything we should add? I, I mean, the, the assurance and evidence thing, I think, is a, is a good and often uh, difficult distinction to make, right? Because if you say something is evidence of faith, shouldn't it be good for telling you? that you do have it. Um, but I, I like the, I like the idea that that evidence is, is mostly for your neighbor mm-hmm. primarily and, and, and chiefly for your neighbor. Um, I, w- I would say one more thing, which is that the place that like, if you're worried about your salvation or if you're worried about whether you have faith or not, I guess I would just, I would, I would urge you to 
uh, take refuge in the word, take refuge in the word of the forgiveness of sins, uh, take refuge in your baptism. Um, yeah. And, uh, I know that many of us are not taking the Lord's supper very often right now, but, uh, but Christ is, is also serving his body and blood and the bread and the wine at the table as well. Uh, and all these are, are there to give you assurance of, uh, your salvation. And so, um, so I think that's an important thing that should enter into a discussion about uh, mortal and venial sin. Yeah, and I think uh, we could even say that people, it is likely, and I've, I've even experienced people in my life like this who don't have the categories mortal and venial in their head, but have worried, did I just commit a sin grave enough that means I'm not a Christian anymore? Like, um, and uh, if you are struggling with that, I mean, I have no idea where this question came from, right? This was a very short email that we got, uh, thank you fellows. Um, but if the person who asked that, or if anybody else is wondering, have I sinned so gravely I'm not in the faith, There, you should you should go receive forgiveness from your pastor. You should go um, confess these sins that are weighing heavily on your conscience and, and receive the absolution for them. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and knowing too that, I think I've said, I've said this a lot, that all sin separates us from God, but um, we have Christ who, who has, uh, fixed that separation, who has brought us close. And, and that's the good news of the gospel for, for all of us who are, you know, struggling with sins that are small or sins that are big. Um, we know that we do, we do have Christ and, um, that we, that I'm righteous and you, you are righteous because, because of him. So. Yeah, it, Jesus loves nothing more than raising dead people and forgiving very, very serious mortal sins. He loves nothing more than to do that for you. So, right there's uh, there's no uh, death to fear anymore. He, you have died with Christ. You will be raised with Christ. Uh, that the the more the mortality of that sin has already been faced. It has already been overcome. All right, guys. Well, I think this was a great episode. Um, you can go to 1517.org forward slash podcast to see Thinky Fellows episodes as well as all of the shows there. Um, if you are looking to support the Thinky Fellows in any way, there's two ways that you can do that where you can help us out. Uh, you can go to 1517.org forward slash donate, and there you could set up a small reoccurring donation. Those would uh, greatly help the longevity of the podcast network and our ability to not only produce more shows, but um, reach more people with our content. Um, and then the second way that you can help the Thinking Fellows directly or any shows that you enjoy from 1517 are is to go to Apple Podcasting app, find the show, and to give it a short five-star review. I'll leave a link in the show notes to that. And uh, if you do not use an Apple device, you can access Apple Podcasts from any web browser. So that link will work and it'll take you over there and you can leave a rating. Um, if it doesn't make a lot of sense to you why ratings help, I can briefly explain that it just helps search hits. Um, Apple uses it as one of the categories to uh, pull up when you search. You know, Let's say you just searched sin. Um, if we have a lot of five-star reviews and a lot of good listeners over at Thinking Fellows, it, chances are that our episodes on sin are going to show up uh, before others. And so if it's a, it's a way to get the show in more people's ears because it'll just sort of uh, organically occur. So thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Bye.